This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Welcome to the Hindu's In Focus podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. Even before the World Health Organization announced this month that the COVID-19 pandemic no longer constituted a global emergency, the pandemic had begun to slowly fade from public memory. For some people, however, health issues from the viral infection remain even months after they first contracted the infection. Long COVID continues to haunt hundreds of people in the country. Long COVID has a wide variety of symptoms, often not easy to diagnose, potentially leaving many not even realizing they have it or not knowing whom to seek help from. What is long COVID? How and in whom does it manifest? Now that the pandemic is no longer an emergency, what can be done to better understand and treat people with it in India? To speak to us about these issues and more, we have with us today Dr. Lancelot Pinto, consultant respirologist and epidemiologist, PD Hinduja Hospital and Medical Research Center, Mumbai. Hi, Dr. Pinto, and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Hi, Zubeda. Thank you for having me. So, doctor, tell us a little bit about what long COVID is, particularly with regard to the research going on in India. What do you think the prevalence of long COVID in India is, and how is it diagnosed? So, long COVID uh, is a uh, a syndrome or a, a bunch of symptoms that has been recognized after a person has COVID and after the initial acute phase. So, we all know what the symptoms of COVID are. Typically, you have high grade fever, you have shortness of breath, you have a cough, uh, respiratory symptoms. Uh, most of which resolve for a majority of people in a week or two. Now, some individuals who do get hospitalized who have severe disease uh, can have the acute episode itself last for about a month sometimes. Uh, but what we're calling long COVID is a bunch of uh, symptoms that persist beyond the initial acute phase, which is why some individuals have also called this the post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection or PASD uh, for short. So these are uh, these are symptoms that pretty much involve every organ of the body in in, in different permutations and combinations. And uh, what is what is what is now learned is that uh, it can happen in up to ten percent of individuals who who have COVID. Now, what's interesting is that although there is a strong correlation between the initial episode, so if you have a severe initial episode, your probability of long COVID is higher. But a lot of individuals who tend to have a very mild initial episode also tend to have symptoms uh, that are prolonged. Now, up to 10% is, is not a small number. And, and this number is has been, has been reported to be as high as about 30% in individuals who have moderate to severe disease. Uh, there was a large study called the Recovery Initiative, which has uh, just been funded in the US and they've just published their first publication in Nature uh, Reports, I think it was about a week ago. Uh, it was a $1.15 billion uh, study. What they basically did was they looked at two databases that they had. Uh, so you have electronic health records in which uh, everybody is kind of documented and these are very useful ways of trying to understand disease. So they took two databases, one based out of New York, one based out of Florida, and looked at individuals who had COVID versus individuals who did not have COVID. And they looked looked at the diagnosis and the, and the drugs that were used in the one year post-COVID 
uh, among individuals who had and didn't have COVID. And they were basically looking for what new symptoms or what new diagnoses were made in individuals who had COVID versus those who did. And it was quite interesting, their findings. So they found a wide variety of new diagnoses made, uh, a lot of them neurological, so people who reported dementia for the first time, people who reported cognitive impairment or impairment in, in kind of neurological function for the first time, depression, sleep disturbances, so that was as far as neurological goes. Hair, hair loss was a very common symptom in the first year post-COVID. Now, respiratory symptoms are, are you know, what we face on a day-to-day -day basis as pulmonologists, patients coming back to us. We do know that a lot of individuals have scars uh, in the lung, which you know, loosely people use the word fibrosis for it. People have sharpness of breath. Chest pain is a common symptom for days post-COVID. Um, increased use of inhalers is what they found in the first year post-COVID, and this is something that we have noticed as pulmonologists as well. So a lot of individuals with asthma, with allergies, who had been well controlled for years, suddenly have found that post-COVID, their symptoms have become more brittle. They've been having more frequent asthma attacks, more frequent allergies than before, uh, which is something that we very commonly see. Uh, a lot of blood abnormalities. So people have had clots in their blood. So whether it's a cardiovascular event, such as a stroke, uh, which leads to paralysis, uh, uh, it's been reported in a higher frequency post-COVID. Uh, people have this thing called the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where individuals suddenly feel lightheaded when they stand up, when they move about. There's a sudden increase in heart rate, which has been described. So that's the the, the cardiac side effects of, of COVID, which have been described. Uh, there has been a large study which was done in the VA database. So the veterans have a large database in the US. And there was a study done looking at cardiovascular events and the incidences of heart problems, such as heart attacks. Uh, strokes have clearly shown a higher prevalence among individuals who had COVID versus those who haven't. In addition, people have had all sorts of uh, abnormalities such as constipation, abdominal pain, uh, newly diagnosed diabetes has been reported in individuals uh, who've had COVID. Um, a lot of uh, individuals who've had borderline kidney function have gone into strength renal failure or kidney failure. Um, and a whole gamut of these symptoms have been reported in a much higher prevalence among those who've had COVID versus those who haven't had COVID. Now, uh, when it comes to India, I can speak for our own personal experience, which is, again, a, a small fraction of the real story, clearly, because I work at a tertiary care center and I'm a pulmonologist. So my experience would be biased towards individuals with respiratory symptoms. But we've seen a lot of individuals come with uh, with worsening of their, uh, you know, what, what would be described as allergic symptoms. So whether it's asthma, whether it's nasal congestion, frequent nasal symptoms, shortness of breath has been an, uh, a symptom very often described by people post-COVID, uh, and a general sense of fatigue, which you sometimes can't pinpoint to uh, whether it's respiratory, whether it's cardiac, whether it's just muscle weakness. Uh, it's difficult to pinpoint, but a lot of individuals have come back with this symptom. Now, as pulmonologists, we do something called pulmonary function test, um, a part of which includes a test called diffusion. Now, diffusion basically is a reflection of how efficient your lungs are at moving oxygen from the air into the blood. And we've consistently found drops in diffusion among individuals who've had COVID. Um, there is a bias towards testing more for people who've been hospitalized, but even in individuals who've had mild disease who've come to us with shortness of breath, when we have tested them with this, with this a little, with this um, 
uh, I would say it's a little more than sophisticated test. So it's not something that you would do routinely. Uh, analysis of diffusion. We found drops in diffusion capacity among individuals who've had COVID. Now, uh, this is this is specific experience from a pulmonologist at a tertiary care center. Now, if you talk about overall, what is the incidence of long COVID? I think I think it's always challenging uh, in India because we don't really have uh, we don't have good electronic health records to to link up link patients and try and figure out what's happening once they get discharged from hospitals. The second thing is, you know, there is a lack of a social net in India, so individuals going on disability or individuals are uh, trying to be at home for prolonged periods is challenging so so most individuals who even have symptoms are probably pushing through those symptoms turning up at work and and not knowing where to go to to seek solace so there are there, there's no consolidated database there uh, we've also noticed that you know among sedentary individuals even a loss of lung function of about 20% may not be reflected in day to day life so you know individuals who run marathons for example a lot of them come back saying you know post covid we're finding it very challenging but if you have a sedentary life, maybe a small loss in lung function is not something that's reflected in day-to-day -day life. And therefore, these individuals also will not get diagnosed. So for certain, uh, if I had to guess, I would guess that the, the incidence of long COVID in India is, is significantly underreported and underdiagnosed. And I think uh, one, of, one of the limiting factors, of course, is the lack of funding. You need, you need a lot of money to be able to... Uh, to be able to call in, you know, individuals who had mild COVID, for example, and extensively test them uh, and, and look for abnormalities. So we are, we are currently in the middle of uh, analyzing some of our data for hospitalized patients. I think we've had close to 3,000 patients uh, admitted at our hospital. And we've started collecting and analyzing the data just to try and identify who were the individuals who, got, who had severe versus those who had mild. Um, now, if we are able to master up the funding, we would like to at least analyze and look at uh, what the incidence of long COVID is among hospitalized patients. And I think that would be a good starting point. What you've described, doctor, is an absolute huge range of symptoms affecting so many different organs of the body. Why does this happen, doctor? Is it specific to COVID or is this something that has previously been seen with other viral infections that have also spread to a large extent across the world, such as, for instance, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome? So what is going on specifically with COVID? Is it affecting all of our lungs? Is there residual COVID left inside our bodies that is not going away? What exactly is causing this? So again, this is an area of a lot of research as well, right? So we don't completely understand uh why long COVID happens. And, uh, you know, if you look at viral infections, uh, I think we have a large experience with dengue in India, right? Uh, we also have experience with chikungunya. And we know for a fact that there are viral infections which cause prolonged periods of malaise, fatigue, uh, which which cause a lot of neuro neurological and muscular musculoskeletal symptoms for a long, long time. So, in that sense, it is not a novel concept that viruses are capable of causing prolonged symptoms. Um, th there are parallels which have been drawn, uh, such as uh, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome is, is, is similar in some ways to COVID and that's been potentially attributed to an unknown virus. The postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome has been reported in the past with other viral infections as well. So, uh, so it's not unique. Now, why it occurs is, is something that we don't uh, completely understand. And there are various hypotheses that have been postulated uh, as, as causing it. 
one of them is the presence of reservoirs of virus in the tissue in the in some in, in hidden parts of the body so there is virus still in the body it's not severe enough to cause disease but it's severe enough to mount some sort of ongoing immune response which causes a lot of these uh, these symptoms which is why you know some patients with long covid have experienced an improvement in in symptoms after vaccination for example there is a small study which has shown that the antiviral paxlovid might improve uh, symptoms of long covid again both of these are are hinged on the hypothesis that there is residual virus and either by boosting your immunity with with a booster or dose of a vaccine or with an antiviral you possibly get rid of these reservoirs and that improves your symptoms uh there is there is a theory that the the, the immune system is dysregulated to some extent that uh, you know this is some sort of an autoimmune mechanism in which the virus has come and gone away but it's triggered off some sort of a viral some sort of an immune cascade in which the body is producing auto antibodies so antibodies directed towards the own body and i think there are studies which have shown that the prevalence of auto antibodies among individuals with long covid is higher than that uh in the population uh this is also tied to this whole concept of molecular mimicry that the virus in some ways uh mimics uh certain antigens against which the body then starts starts mounting antibody responses so there are there are natural cells in the body which in some way cross react to the virus and the body keeps then uh, mounting an immune response against these cells of course uh, i think autopsy studies have shown that individuals who've had who passed away because of covid have a lot of clotting abnormalities in the body so we know that the that covid when it leads to an inflammatory cascade in some way triggers of coagulation or triggers of clotting pathways in the body so there is this hypothesis that the the blood coagulation mechanisms in some way are disrupted and this doesn't happen at a macro level so it's not like you would be able to do an angiography and detect it immediately these are these are microscopic clots that are present all over the body and, and that causes this kind of uh, dysregulation of multiple organs which is why this whole hypothesis that blood thinners or anticoagulants might help in some way and we know that the nerves are affected in 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 some ways as well so nerve signaling for some reason is affected which could lead to this whole uh postural hypotension for example that the the nerves that determine the tone of your blood vessels gets affected in some way and and that's what's causing the problem now again what leads to the nerve dysfunction could potentially be autoimmune in some way could be some sort of molecular mimic mimicry going on there uh there are there's also a hypothesis that there might be some sort of a dysregulation in the microbiota which is basically uh the body intrinsically has uh, an ecosystem of uh, of microbes which keeps a healthy homeostasis which keeps everything in balance and for some reason that gets disrupted and that disruption in the microbiome uh in some way triggers off some sort of immune pathways so i mean these are all hypotheses and some of these hypotheses are tied to the fact that some drugs which act on these mechanisms have been shown to uh, help patients with the long covid uh but again you know i mean it's not easy to to test these things so for example they use something called hyperpolarized lung mris to detect abnormalities in the, in the lung uh when you suspect something happening at a at a microscopic level which again is not accessible at all to us to the best of my uh knowledge the the surrogate for that is the diffusion test which which i just described and maybe that's something to look at if a person has respiratory symptoms uh they do something called corneal microscopy to look at small fiber neuropathy so small fibers being affected in the cornea 
again to, to the best of my knowledge not not easy, easily accessible there are tests which can look at cardiac abnormalities or look for cardiac injury uh, which are sophisticated again and all of these have been shown to be abnormal when you look hard enough but you know uh, there is a resource constraint when it looks when you talk about you know being that aggressive in your investigations and of course it, you know understanding the pathways is the first step towards going towards treatment uh, but the way knowledge stands currently you know doing all these tests might give you some sort of mechanistic idea as to why a particular thing is happening uh, but unfortunately we are not there yet where we can offer treatment to our patients with a certain uh, degree of confidence there's there's low dose naltrexone for example which has been tried which comes again from the experience from chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, similar other post viral syndromes which has shown uh, some some benefit uh, but again you know the ideal way to do things would be if you have a patient with long covid you explain to them the uncertainty in terms of treatment and try and enroll them into a drug trial um, and again you know conducting drug trials involves a lot of resources so i i think uh, we are we are some distance away from really offering patients in india uh, quality care when it comes to long covid doctor the, the number of symptoms you described does it make diagnosis difficult is there any sort of a diagnosis diagnostic criteria that is used for instance in other countries uh, that makes it a little easier to diagnose long covid so it does make diagnosis difficult for sure because even uh, even a patient who is suffering from a gamut of symptoms struggles to know who the right person to go to for treatment is so i am a pulmonologist so if you have respiratory problems post covid i would be the right person to come to but if you have a gamut of symptoms such as fatigue such as uh, the inability to find the energy to do day to day activities or you find you find yourself very weak for example it's it's difficult to know whom to go to to kind of seek a diagnosis and treatment uh the other problem of course in india is that everyone almost everyone over the past 2 2 and a half 3 years now has had covid or uh, you know a significant proportion of the population is also vaccinated so temporarily associating your symptoms with covid becomes difficult you know a lot of people say post vaccination they've had symptoms some people say post covid they've had symptoms so for a doctor to pinpoint the temporal association between covid and symptoms also is not necessarily uh, always easy so there are questionnaires which have been developed uh, which have been used in studies as well which kind of try and assign scores to your symptoms and try and figure out whether there is a temporal association and therefore whether your symptoms can be uh, assigned to long covid uh, but it is it is challenging because uh, it's frustrating for a lot of doctors because again we we don't really have much to offer in terms of treatment so a lot of patients do get therefore labeled as you know it being all in their mind they do get labeled as uh as as uh, having psychiatric symptoms when in when in reality this is a this is a very real organic uh syndrome or uh, real organic uh, disease so to speak but unfortunately our our lack of understanding and our lack of options to offer therapeutically uh makes us very often be dismissive of patient symptoms that must be very difficult for patients to go through constantly trying to go from doctor to doctor trying to figure out what's wrong with them right no abs- absolutely you know and uh, there are tons of stories out there of of patients and you know a lot of a lot of the activism around long covid has gone from the ground up right it's not physicians who realized there's a problem and therefore pushed governments or pushed uh, healthcare systems to kind of acknowledge the problem it's very often been patient support groups 
uh, who've come to the f- to the front and said, you know, this is not imagined. This is very real, uh, and and that eventually has has led to uh, an interest in in the disease, an interest in funding, an interest in conducting research. Uh, it it definitely must be extremely frustrating for patients and. Uh, and it's difficult. It's difficult for doctors as well in a way that, you know, for me, it's difficult to acknowledge a problem and not offer a solution, right? That's how we are designed as physicians to treat most illnesses. So to tell, to, to be able to acknowledge the fact that there is a problem and not offer either a drug trial to the patient, not, not be able to offer any treatment whatsoever uh, without saying that this treatment will definitely work is, is challenging. I, I think the 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 sensible, the rational, and the the empathetic way to go about doing things would be if you have a patient who has symptoms, you do make sure that whatever you understand, for example, we know that B12 deficiencies are associated with weakness as well. We know that vitamin D3 deficiencies are associated with fatigue. Uh, make sure that you you know kind of you have a checklist of things that you want to make sure are in place. So the bare minimum we can do is make sure that the contributory factors to long COVID, uh, which are known to be associated with these symptoms, have been ruled out, right? So if somebody has breathlessness, make sure you've done a lung function test. Uh, make sure you've ruled out any other lung diseases. Make you know, and and once you've kind of done everything that is established and you have treatment to offer for, like for example, B12 deficiency, you give a patient B12, D3 deficiency, you correct it. Once you've done all of that, if you feel a patient still struggling, then you either, you know, suggest that they get enrolled in a drug trial, which again is not easy in India, or you try the drugs that have shown limited success in small studies as of now, with the understanding that it is still in the experimental domain. And if the patient is willing to try something different with the understanding that this is not established standard of care, I think it's, it's, it's a good idea to offer it to, to your patients. So does that mean there's no standardized treatment protocol as of yet in India? No, there isn't. And, and that's not really true for India. That's true for the rest of the world as well, right? So there isn't any established treatment that is standard of care. Uh, and again, the treatment would also vary depend on, depending on which organ system is involved, right? So like the low-dose naltrexone has shown to work for the, the chronic fatigue kind of syndromes. Blood thinners have been tried when you think microclotting is the main uh, cause of the abnormality. Um, Paxlovid has been tried against in a small study for individuals where again the, the hypothesis is that generalized inflammation is doing something. When you think the nerves are affected, people have tried, tried think like things like something called a stellate ganglion block, which is a nerve block. Um, if the person is giddy because their blood pressure drops, you know, you try and increase their salt intake, which is being used for the postural uh, orthostatic syndrome. So, number one, there is no established uh, pill that works across all the symptoms. So, you would have to tailor it based on which organ is manifesting uh, the predominance of symptoms. Uh, number two, even for those individual organs, uh, there is nothing that has been established beyond a doubt to kind of work. So, a lot of it is still in the experimental domain. But again, you know, it's worth trying it based on the evidence that's available for similar syndromes. Uh, such as chronic fatigue syndrome, right? But but I think I think the bottom line, which you're going to hear again and again, is that we need a lot more research to try and understand what's happening, because again, ten percent of all those who had COVID is is not a small number by any standards. 
Last question, Doctor. Now that the WHO has said that COVID-19 is no longer a global emergency, what next would you say are the steps required, especially when it comes to the Indian context in terms of long COVID? You said number one would be more research. What else could be done? I think the low-hanging fruit or you know, the, the bare minimum that we can start doing is looking at what's happened to all the individuals who've been hospitalized with severe uh, COVID. I think that's that would be a great starting point. That what happens to them one year, two years, three years down the road? You know, how many of them uh, have cardiac events, for example, post-COVID? How many of them have long-term disability? Uh, and that would make us acknowledge uh, the reality of the situation, you know, because uh, I think that's, that's uh, definitely needed to try and at least un- identify uh, how bad it can get with individuals who are hospitalized. It could also sensitize individuals to constantly protect themselves by letting them know that it's not something trivial. You know, you may have COVID, you may have, you may recover, uh, but your best bet would be trying as much as possible to not get COVID if if the post-COVID sequelae are, are so significant. I think once we've done that, then I, I think the next step would be to try and figure out population-based studies or community-based studies to try and understand what happens to individuals with mild COVID. And I think their uh, starting point would, would be the support groups, maybe individuals who've come forward and clearly, you know, are lobbying uh, for research in long COVID, at least start with them and, and you know, do a study where you can identify controls versus individuals who've had long COVID and see if there's some sort of a signal that's unique to India, maybe that's unique to our population. Uh, and then, you know, the, the final step, of course, once we've identified what the abnormalities are, would be to try and fast track some sort of uh, clinical trials to help individuals with with long COVID. But again, all of this at the end of the day uh, takes a lot of investment in both time, money and energy. And and I think it's important for us to constantly lobby for it because as as you rightly point, you know, the WHO has said that COVID is no longer an emergency. So it's it's going to become one of those diseases that we learn to live with uh, that, that will constantly have peaks and troughs throughout the year. There will be seasons in which we have it and we won't, just like influenza. Uh, and in all of this, once we start learning to kind of trivialize the disease itself, the possibility that we will completely ignore what happens after the disease is very high. And, and we should, I think, I think it's important for us to do our best to prevent that from happening. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Doctor. Thanks, Subeta. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.